How many of us meander and stumble along in a life that is expected of us? For Rochelle Patterson, that meant pursuing a successful career in law and finance, getting married and having kids. Growing up as a young boy in a regional New South Wales town, Rochelle knew that she was different, but believed that she had to hide that difference. As a teenager, she worked hard and excelled at sport, music and academia, while boarding at an all-boys boarding school in Melbourne. So when her dad pulled her aside to tell her she was too prissy, she was hurt and terrified. After living under a painful cloak of secrecy, lies and shame for decades, Rochelle made a decision to explore her agony in therapy, as well as open up to the only person who knew her secret, in a quest to discover her true self. In this conversation with Rochelle, we learn what it's like to live with unbearable shame and the distress of living a life that's inauthentic to who you are at your very core. We also glean emotional insights into what can ensue when you tell your partner of 29 years that you're not who they think you are. However, don't be fooled. This is not a conversation of gender dysphoria, but a powerful story of the fight to live as the real you, the you that you always sensed you were. And that makes it a profoundly human story that could be yours or mine, but luckily for our treasured human cogs listeners, this is Rochelle's story. So you say you were a regular farm boy from Wagga Wagga who rode motorbikes and barracked for Carlton just like your dad and yet you knew that you were different and you knew that you had to hide that difference. What were some of your younger year memories and what was it like growing up in your family? We were a very close family. The most bizarre thing about our family is that significant part of my formative memories actually come from an 18-month stint we spent in Addis Adabar in Ethiopia. And so because we were there together living in a slightly different world, we were drawn very close together as a family unit. And so that was a pretty amazing period of our time. And we always look back at that time as being such a special, special time. So that would have been I'm pretty sure that my first grade was at the French International School in Addis Ababa. Wow, what an experience. And it is often those different experiences, different from the norm, if you like, that we remember being in a different house or a different country, a different culture. So what number child are you in the in the family? So I was the third child. So everyone thought I was the second son. <laughs> Okay. All right. The third child and the second son. (laughs) Okay. But on a more serious note, you said you knew that you were different and you felt you had to hide that. And that's, it's hard to pinpoint at what time that realisation came. And I certainly can't point to, I know some trans people point to saying, oh, I knew when I was three years old or I knew when I was four years old. But those sort of thoughts just were unfathomable to us back in the 1970s. I wasn't well when we came back from Ethiopia and I started primary school and I was often sick. I do remember one time when someone was talking about things they'd done on holidays and they'd been to 
movie world on the Gold Coast and they'd seen an amusing video about a penguin in having a shower and they found a bra in there. And I earnestly put up my hand and what's a bra? And I'm still pained by the torturous memory of the teacher trying to talk about what a bra was. And I was saying, and when do I get to wear one of those? And then the general mockery that comes from that and then being told and you go, oh, okay, so that files away. I think it was that early when you're starting to realise that the genders are different and the path for me was to be a boy. And so at that time my friendship group was shared both boys and girls and because I was a bit more bookish than some of the boys, I would generally be hanging out more so with the girls than with the boys. But I had my male clique and my friend girls. And so I didn't often do the things that the other more boyish boys did. I would relate it back to that time, but I didn't never had that burning hunger to be a girl that you hear from other trans people. And I think that's because I just never thought of it as being possible. Mm, it wasn't on a menu that you knew anything you could order from. No. But then fast forward to year 12 and for someone who hadn't been, um, you said you were more bookish, <laughs> to use your words, um, and you end up being a prefect and a house captain and rowing at the head of the river, which is a significant rowing event in, in uh, the state and the, the country, and you were also in the first hockey team. Yeah. That yeah. doesn't sound so bookish. No. So in year nine, I was six foot one. My physical presence made itself felt. And you're in a boarding house because I was a boarder and that means you have to exert your physical side. That's what you do. You don't want to be overtly different. So I fitted in, got first 18 colours as well. So I was first 18, first 11, hockey, rowing, all of those things. At, a, at an all-boys school, if you want to fit in, you want to be have some sporting category. I was funny catching up with someone four years ago and they say, you were such a jock at school. And I'd never considered myself to be that because I also played the flute and I was in this school opera from year nine. So I did have my artistic outlets. But you just do those things to fit in and because that's – the culture that we live in to want to excel. And I always had that bent to actually push myself forward, lead and be one of the front people I didn't want to ever. So I was certainly never effeminate. Mm -hmm. And I think Brene Brown says something about um, the difference between fitting in versus belonging. And when we strive to fit in, it's for other people. When we belong, it's for ourselves. I think it would be fair to say that I never felt that belonging. So you're always trying, you know, I love my hockey. So being on the first 11 for hockey was not a difficulty. Rowing was a fantastic outlet as well. But if I am goal umpire for the first 18 and I'm hanging out with the football club team, then I'm part of that as well. And then if I'm house president, I'm leading there. So I pick up masculine sort of traits and that was that was what I what I did to belong. To fit in. Yeah. Yeah, in the desire to belong. Correct. And yeah. Because we all want to be part of the culture or the society we are in. We need to belong to the tribe to survive and I imagine particularly at an all-boys school. Um, boarding house. A boarding house, a Catholic 
boys' boarding house, that need to belong, yep. and, well, that need to fit in is yep. high. So you tell the story, Rochelle, of your parents coming to visit you at the boarding house and you were pumped, like you were ready to say, look at all the things that I've done, all the achievements, I've been really working hard. It sounds like you'd put a lot of effort in scholastically and with your sport and obviously in other pursuits too. And what does your dad say to you? What was strange about this was him asking to speak to me alone, so asking my mother to leave us and then saying, I think you're prissy. You need to be more manly. It's important for you to be manly. And I really can't remember what my response is to this because I've ticked so many boxes. I'm showing that I'm fitting in. But what my dad is telling me is that I don't measure up and that there's something wrong with me. And that's a conversation that happened over 30 years ago. It still haunts me that I was not manly enough for him. I think that really marked a dislocation in the relationship I had with my parents from that time. I still love them and I still wanted to be with them, but I never wanted to be around them too much because just in case I failed in their judgment again. That wasn't a conscious decision, but when I look back over the years, I think that's why I would never go home, school holidays, college holidays mainly. Once I became more independent, um, it really hurt my parents that I would never come home and we had an agreement that I must spend at least 10 days at home for the year and that was what I spent. So you had to contract it because otherwise you would have chosen not to do it. It sounds like the the really deep pain point was with your dad because your mum had been asked to exit the room for that conversation. That's right, yeah. You chose not to see either of them. They're in the same camp. Oh, they, they would have been in the same camp. Oh, yeah. I don't know if they'd discussed that beforehand and there was never any great schism in our relationship it was just I did tried not to be around with them and I had a very full life down here in Melbourne so mm. going home was a bit boring as well yeah which is kind of normal for a lot of this is uni age you're talking that's about. that's right uni yeah. age and early years of work yeah and it's around this time too Rochelle that I think you've talked about um, cross-dressing so perhaps it was a time when you felt that you could start to explore and uh, there was some freedom to dip your toe in the water I guess that look that probably started to occur more at university um, and they were only early steps Mm -hmm. along that path Mm -hmm. yeah I've heard you say something to the effect that, um, you know, while you're dabbling in this cross-dressing behaviour in your early 20s, you then decided that you needed to follow the life that was expected of you. Yeah. Getting married, having children, following a a career in the finance sector. Finance sector. um, So we, we had a big push. So my father was an agricultural consultant. And he was a very academic person. And my mother was a physio. So she was 
very early in that field for a woman. So there was a lot of expectations upon us to lead a professional existence. So my brother is a lawyer. I was going to be a lawyer. And then I also had the commerce side of it. So I'd always thought of going into investment banking. Mm -hmm. Uh, What were you most frightened of if you deviated from this pathway that was expected of you from your family and the greater community that you wished to belong to? That career path would not have existed if I had deviated whatsoever. At that time, I was also wondering if I was gay. Back then when we thought about cross-dressing or something along those lines, it was always a closeted sort of existence, um, gay men who couldn't wanted to express themselves that way. This concept of transgender just didn't exist at the time. At that stage it was, am I attracted to men? Could I go that way? And, of course, at that time, you also had a massive scare campaign going on with AIDS. Mm. We had conversations coming back from Wagga about boys who were returning home to die and the the shame that that had brought upon their families. Another thing is what embarrassment and what impact I could have on my parents if I was gay. Yeah. Those sort of things. So the expectations were there and the bringing the shame down on the family was a very real prospect. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I was involved in student politics at the time as well. So you you didn't have a lot of room for experimentation because you always thought people were watching. Mm. At college, I was involved on the student council there. I actually ran for president of the student union, um, those sort of things. Um, And I've always come more from the conservative side of things. So you didn't want have this other sort of side to you. Having said that, one of my closest friends was gay and and out. Mm. Um, And I never shared any any of this with him. Or with anyone? No. No. Mm. And then you go on to get married. You marry Catherine who you met at university? Yeah, so... She was at the same university college. She was in second year. I was just a fresher. Ooh, controversial. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> uh, she ex- she took advantage of me. <laughs> she pushes back very strongly on that story. Catherine the Cougar. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Um, and we had a very long courtship. We didn't get married till we'd been going out for 10 years, but that was so... We were together for five years at university and then we both started at different law firms at the time. And so we were always matched, always along the way. And um, we never lived together. We we didn't move in together until about a week before we got married. So I was very Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we, it was uh, it was a very strong relationship when we grew together. Of course, not living together meant I could have my secrets. Mm. And what were those secrets at that time? How were you living? Um, There was some cross-dressing there going on. Um, There was occasionally going to the Peel, an old institution, and you sort of go and look around and is this 
the life for me and it was always no I don't think so but that was more more of a gay my my recollections of the PL was was a, a gay bar gay bar drag queens were there mm-hmm. and of course I was never going out in drag mm. I never went out in public till I was 48 mm-hmm. um, because I was so frightened of anyone ever finding out mm. Um, the, the gay peel was an acceptable place to end up at because it was a late night bar. Yeah. Yeah. And were you ever, did you, would you tell Catherine? Uh, I Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes generally, but that was generally if I was with someone else. Yeah. I am turning 50 next month. I don't want to read between the lines too much, but I think it'd be fair to say that approaching a milestone birthday, particularly perhaps 50, the, the midpoint it's considered in, in a lifetime, I guess, is a time for many of introspection and reflection and who am I and where do I want to be. Is it a coincidence that it was... 50? N- yeah. Yes. I think the timing worked that way. I certainly love the synchronicity of it. That was fantastic. I think it was more of an impact that I was 40 when we had our first child. That really knocked me for a spin. And when I look at other trans stories, that is not uncommon. When people become parents, the feelings they develop almost maternal and starting to go, am I reacting to this relationship as a father, as a man, or how do we do that? What roles do I want to play? So that was when I was 40. Around that same time, shortly thereafter, three or four years, my father passed and then my mother passed. Now, by that stage, I'm cross-dressing at least monthly if not weekly. Behind closed doors only. Totally behind closed doors. I'm starting to become massively suicidal. Mm. I would walk home and just think, I live in Richmond, walking from the CBD, going through um, Treasury Gardens, just thinking, I wish I was under the ground. I just want to return to the earth. Um, and that was a constant refrain as I was walking home because I could not cope with just the discomfort I was under. But I had these two munchkins at home and my wife that I loved and you're juggling that and then that feeling of what can I do about it? And that was why I reached out and said I've got to do therapy. I've got to try and find a solution here. I've got to find a cure. Mm, a cure. That's an interesting choice of words. Okay, so you enter therapy. I tried therapy and that would have been, and it was a terribly negative experience. What age were you then? Um, so that pro- probably around 44, mm-hmm. 44, 45. So this is when my father is quite ill um, and I've gone into therapy and had a male therapist, fairly conservative, who just shut me down, breathing exercises. Now, of course, I'm not vocalising anything about my gender identity or sexuality or anything like that, just about the stresses I was experiencing Mm -hmm. in life. So I have those sessions go, this guy's not right for me. 
I then go, well, I'm on my own. This is impossible. Now, during this time, I had been seeing professional cross-dressing people. They do a much better job than I ever did on my own. And I've asked one of them. So, sorry, when you talk about professional, you mean people who are cross-dressing regularly? and No, these are women who provide services to cross-dressers. What kind of services? Dressing services. Oh, okay, okay. So people that are yeah. wizards with the makeup, with the clothes, with fashion style. That's okay. right. Yeah. Now, a lot of those had sexual undertones, um, but yet there are, if you, on the internet, if you want it, you can find it. Um, but yeah, there are people there who offer purely a dressing experience, keep clothes, do all that sort of thing. It's it's amazing what that the underground that exists out there. And I've said to one of them, I need help. Mm. And they gave me some suggestions to more sex positive therapists. I'm like, okay. So I tried therapy again. And it took me at least three to four months of fortnightly sessions where I'm trying to talk about pressures through work lens and family stresses without actually raising what is the issue. Until finally I said, look, I may be bisexual because that was less shameful than saying I may be transgender. And then she's pushed me harder because her initial suggestion was, well, that's not fine. You, that's all fine. You can get that. And I'm going, well, actually, that's not the issue. Um, I may be, I do cross-dressing, cross-dressing. And I think she went ka-ching because um, <laughs> now we, then we moved up to weekly sessions and but we actually started to discuss what was the problem. And we started to actually talk about what is possible and what being a real transgender woman was. And I started to expand my knowledge and have a look at married people had transitioned to being a tra transgender woman and the marriages had worked. And you start to go okay, maybe I'm over-analyzing these things. Maybe the shame is not going to bring disaster on the family. That was a very, very stressful time because I'm working through all this on my own and I can't tell anyone. And yet you're continuing to do your high-pressured corporate job by day and go home and be daddy by night yep. and be a husband to Catherine yep. and hold this secret. And um, so I, at that time there was a lot of alcohol, a lot of alcohol being consumed. So, But that was a release. That was how you coped and I'd stay out late come home often three or four in the morning you'd survive through and then each week i'd be going back to therapy and trying to work out this thing at this time and this was a, a lot of this work was happening in 2015 around that time there's glasses that you can get that help colorblind people seeing colors 
And I think the spring of that year will ever be forever be magical for me because I got a pair of those glasses. And so I'm walking around doing a lot of walking on the weekends, wearing the glasses, and I'm seeing the world in colour at the same time as this potential of a life of authenticity was opening up for me. And it was incredible. And I started to see hope. At the same time, I was terrified. Mm. (laughs) So terrified that what I was going to do would ruin everything. And it would hurt those I loved. And they would reject me. And so we built up to that night in October, which was the first time I went out in public to go to a support group, the Seahorse. That was such a build-up to that night of this is the first time I'm going to go out in public. And it was incredible once I went out there and turn up in a cafe where there's a small group of cross-dressers, trans women, and one trans man, and you just go, wow, I'm not alone. Mm. I'm really not alone. And to have people address me as Miss was so powerful. And I sat down next to someone who had fully transitioned and had, as she said, I've had all my bits done. And you just go, wow, this is something that I can do. And I was just euphoric. And that was what it was. It was euphoric and so joyful. I had booked myself into a hotel so I could get ready. And so I got back to the hotel and it was like, okay, this is going to happen. And then the real impact was now I have to tell Catherine. Now I have to tell my wife about this issue. And it wasn't ever that I was going to transition. That decision had not been made. But I I couldn't be alone anymore. I had to tell her about this other side to me. I think it was two weeks later and so my therapist had made me make sure I had three support people, which was really hard because I hadn't shared this with anyone. It was her, the therapist, and two of the women who'd been helping me dress over the years. (laughs) We'd gone to Derby Day the day before. This is you and Catherine? Yeah. Yeah. And so the next day I said, let's go – for a walk, we need to talk. And I'd arranged a nanny to be there on the Sunday to look after the kids. And we're both a little hungover. <laughs> Anyhow, and then eventually we sat down and I said, look, you need to know there's something going on. And, and we're ducking and weaving and not really confronting the issue until I finally said, I'm transgender. And the response was, What? <laughs> Had she joined some dots, not, and perhaps not that mm. dot, I'm thinking she's thinking you're having an affair. You're spending a lot of time out, you're in hotels, you're home late, you're drinking. I think that may have been a suspicion there, but we're both very busy people. But not that you're a trans no, woman. No, and that was certainly... I think her early reaction was, I wish you were gay because then I could explain it. But she just had no no ability 
and the knowledge level is so low in society. So how do you wrap your mind around this? And I think this is where our busy life actually helped us because around that stage, I said, look, this is what's going on. I need to explore it further. I want to get an apartment where I can keep Rochelle personality. I don't want to move out. I still want to, I still love you. I want to continue in this family, but I need to have the scope to work out what's going on. And I didn't want her, I didn't want to be caught and her find out from someone else. And I didn't want to go out and hire an apartment without, without her finding out. She agreed to that. And that step allowed us time that really we, we blinked and suddenly three months had gone by. I had an apartment. She'd visited. She'd seen the apartment. She saw it wasn't some crazy boudoir. <laughs> and she had seen that I was then visiting that apartment every day and she also saw what a better person I was when I had been out and when I had visited that apartment. In other words, when you had been you. Yes. And that helped her see there is a reason that this is not just making it up. This is not something that is just doesn't exist. This is a genuine stress that's been there in your life and you are a better person when we are like this. And so we rolled that on. Mm. But it was so hard. And all the conversations that followed, she's starting to glean who you really are and this sense of probably deep uh, breathing more deeply and um, this sense of acceptance that you're starting to get in touch with you. And she's seeing a much better side of me. But what are the questions for her? And their questions, look, they're questions that I think we're still dealing with as a couple. But the question for her was, surely you're going to want to go and be with a man. And this comes to this whole sexuality versus gender identity issue and this concept that particularly for those of us of older years. Uh, not that old. <laughs> no, not at all. Um who had it drummed into us that drag queens were transgender women and they, they're just different variants of gay men. And this is, you know, one of the learnings you get. So many people want to ask me is, what are you attracted to now? That's the, that's the constant refrain. And the real answer is Catherine. <laughs> it's, um, and so... Those early months were so euphoric and I was not really very good as a part-time husband at that time. And you could, I could see easily how we could bust it apart. I've always done most of the cooking at home. So what would often happen on a Saturday night is I'd get everyone's dinner ready, get the kids packed away, often get them into bed. Then I'd head to the apartment, get changed, get to the nightclub by about 11 p.m., 11.30, midnight, hit that place, 
again might end up at the peel, you know, and I think I got home from the peel at about 6.30, quarter to seven. This is when I'm in my advanced, not in my youth anymore, and I've passed out. And Catherine had didn't hear from me till 10.30 a.m. She thought I was dead. And that was around the t- stage where if I want this marriage to work or keep it, I've got to start working on this and I have to start wooing Catherine and start showing her the positive side of this instead of the happy Rochelle side of it because she had had a gutful of the happy Rochelle side. Mm. <laughs> Around that stage, we started to do things like go out to dinner together as Rochelle and that was a big learning curve. And I think the first time we went out was to Crown, we went and saw Lion and then we went and had dinner at Rosetta. And Catherine said, well, they didn't chase us with pitchforks. <laughs> so her expectations were low. And from there, we've, we just built. But when I look back on which what would be the first 25-odd years of our relationship, I'd always had this rage within me because I'd been so uncomfortable. And she would be the one to bear the brunt of it if I'd been drinking too much, get home and just go, I'm such a disgusting, I'm vile because I loathed, I loathed how I looked. I loathed what I was. I loathed the monster that I thought I was. And I'd come home and I'd rant and rave until I passed out. And then in the morning she'd be going, what was that about? And I'd shut down. Which um, helps us make sense of the very alarming and distressing statistics around mental health in the trans community, not just the LGBTIQ community, but the trans community. The rate of suicidal attempts is very high, isn't it? Extremely high. Look, I think it's 10 times the average. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's fully 60% admit that they've contemplated suicide. At least 40% have attempted. uh, attempted. And I think that makes about 60% liars. Mm. When you speak honestly, most mature trans people have at least attempted once. And the contemplation would be 90%, I yeah. imagine, yep. without the attempts. Yep. What can each and every one of us do to support the trans community? It's just very, very simple things that like pronoun use and recognition of pronouns is a huge bias as i said being addressed as miss was just a huge lift and it still gives me a buzz for so long my night every night time i went out would end with the uber driver saying thank you sir i'm in a dress i'm made up i'm clearly want to be addressed as a woman But Melbourne's pretty good, but I still, every phone call I have with a bank, I have struggled to be identified because they go, no, we really want to talk to Rochelle. Just to let people know that to acknowledge the gender presentation that people want to have. I know it's hard for me because my voice is not a feminine voice despite my efforts in that area. It's... Pronoun, acknowledge pronouns. Don't get hung up about bathrooms. 
don't stare. But Melbourne's a wonderful bubble. It really is, particularly the inner city. When we went to Europe as a family, I had the passport officer saying, welcome to the United Kingdom, sir. He's holding my passport. I was laughed at by people and by most officials in the airport. And the next day when we made our first venture into Hyde Park, I had a woman just pack up laughing in my face. Um, I was misgendered continually throughout London. And my boys found it hilarious. <laughs> they go, you get so angry. <laughs> I'm going, yeah, because it hurts. Mm-hmm. It hurts because it really triggers off the past pain and the trauma. Mm-hmm. I think kids are a wonderful mirror. So sometimes they see humour when we, we need a circuit breaker. And one of your kids, I love something that I think it was Zachary said, when he was talking to other kids at school and I don't know how old he was but I think he said something about, you know, uh, I have two mums and actually one of my mums was my dad and he's kind of explaining it like you you do and one of the kids says that doesn't make any sense and I'm really confused and then Zachary says to you, and I don't know why he was confused because one of his parents is a vegetarian. <laughs> that's, and that's just an abomination as far as Zachary's <laughs> concerned. <laughs> And I'm the child of a vegan, so <laughs> okay. I, 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 I'm, I don't know, you know, I can perhaps make sense of that, but that, that's such a delightful um, contrast in why doesn't this kid get it? I mean, his parents are vegetarian for crying out loud and, and I've got two mums. What's the big deal? One of the stresses we had was when do we tell them? And the conventional wisdom was you have to wait until they've grown. And it just doesn't work because they then think you've lied to them all their life. What's more, I wouldn't have been there for them. I would, even if I'd been physically present, I would have never been properly present. I have such a close relationship with them now. I'm relaxed and I'm there for them and I'm really close to them nowadays. If your parents were still alive, what would you tell them? That would have been really hard and my siblings and I discussed that and they really struggled to believe that my parents would have accepted me. I think they would have, but it would have taken time and these things do take time and you do have to give people space to do it. It is such a different concept to what my parents had ever understood. They had gay friends, which was quite liberal for them back in the 80s. There's such negative perceptions of what it is to be transgender and it's generally because you're a sex worker, you're a dancer, and it's never been like that. It's just been that's always been the representation people see. Some of the concepts that come from... Modern computing came from a trans woman who transitioned back in the 60s. She worked for IBM. They fired her immediately upon transitioning and she had to go away, transition, and then she became pivotal in the development of the computer interface as we understand it today. So they've always been there, but they've been forced to hide. And there'll also be people listening, Rochelle, Trans is not their story. 
transgender is not their journey. But what they will relate to is living a life that's not who they are, secrets from their parents, lies to themselves, stuck in a culture or a family or a context or an expectation. And it's not the way to live your life. I've been surprised by how many people who have said, I wish I could live my life. You're living your life and I just don't feel I can. And when I look at the mistakes I made, and there have been many mistakes, I clearly should have trusted Catherine a lot earlier. I should have trusted my siblings a lot earlier. I should have trusted my friends. I lost friends over this. I've lost some friends have never spoken to me again, but others I have a much better relationship with. And I should have given them the benefit of the doubt. What about trusting you? <laughs> I think that's one of the hardest things we can do because we have the movie reel in our head and to deviate from that movie reel is so hard. And for me, for such a long time, it was easier to end the film than to change it. And I, that's just wrong. And now I believe I'm worth it. And I never did before. It was never worth the effort. I think I made the decisions that I made in terms of once I couldn't control things anymore was more out of love for the family than out of love for myself. And, you know, I, I didn't choose to transition. I chose to live. So um, I could stay in conversation with you for a lot longer, but in the, in the interest of the way the pod world works, <laughs> people don't right. tune in for three-hour pods. So, um, Rochelle, as you know, we do end our conversations on human cogs by asking the same question. And that is, who do you think is doing human well? And I knew this question was coming and I oscillate and it's really a hard question to think. And I think I've come upon an answer. I think my sisters do their human very well, but I'll actually identify my brother-in-law, Peter, because he is just a lovely, genuine guy who supports my sister really well and lives his life as far as I can tell genuinely and happily and uh, he's someone I greatly admire. Thank you for joining me today on Human Cogs. I know that your story will touch people very deeply. Um, it's really a story, a human story and that's the hope that uh, we are sharing human stories on Human Cogs. Thank you. I've I think that's one thing people have to remember is trans people are human. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. 
That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 